How to Win the Lottery Season 4 Finale. The quickest we've ever gotten to a finale, A Confederacy of Dunces by, oh boy, don't have the author here. Hold on. <laughs> I know it, but I'm going to John look. Kennedy Tool. I'm Joey Lewandowski. Uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma here. Back your... again. It is weird that Shreds left us and Tulsa came in when we're talking about a state that is not Oklahoma. You just, you, fan of geography. Or no? Did you say fan of geography? Yeah. So like, well, because your name. Yeah, Tulsa is a state of mind. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Um, like you read or you you look at Larry Clark's photography book Tulsa, and it really conveys what Tulsa is all about. What do you think of the new Sylvester Stallone, Andrea Savage show, Tulsa King? Yeah, I think um, I'm not a fan of monarchies in general. Sure. Uh, but if you're gonna have a king, and it's gonna be of a place like Tulsa. If I'm imagining a king of Tulsa in my head, it's probably someone like Sylvester Stallone. And I like that Andrew Savage is like the number two build on the show. I will probably never watch that show, but I love her. It's on P Plus, right? It's on P Plus. Yeah. Um, my my uh, my former co-host invested in P Plus at one point. Yeah. It's, that, that's why he, he left the show because because <laughs> of his P Plus money. It was such an overwhelming runaway I think, hit. Yeah, it was. Yeah, he, he invested enough money. That it went up one share and he could walk away. He could walk away. Well, it's like those guys who like on the Super Bowl or whatever is like, I'm going to bet a million and a half dollars on this. Like, I'm going to make 15 grand and no, then they lose it. That. With, um. Do, do I bleep his name out? What do yeah, we, bleep it. Okay. <laughs> bleep all names. Okay. Uh, the, the, um, it was the Buffalo game. There was no, some, no, no, it was Jacksonville. Okay. And he bet on, on Jacksonville, like to make that field goal at the end. But it was like the the odds were so insane that it was like he had to bet like $200 to make like three bucks or something like that. And he did it. And he did it and to, to like make $3. And she's like, why? But What's the purpose uh, of that? What's the purpose of that? I don't know. He's a real dunce. No, he's not. He's like the smartest person in the world. My, I know. I know. <laughs> I, I don't want to say this as a negative, but I've liked each book this season less than the previous. And uh, glad we're done. Oh, wow. Yeah, you liked... Uh, I like the movie Guard the best. You like the movie Guard better than all the King's Men. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, King's Men is like your shit. Like, that's King's your... Men is the best, is the best book. I think, I, it's, I, think it's, I think it's a better book than the movie Goer, but I, don't, I did not enjoy it as much. And I like this one quite a bit. Um, and this book has... Uh, like and this a, is the one of the three you had previously read. Yeah, this book has a tie-in to the movie Goer in sort of multiple ways. Um, Famously white author Walker Percy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we got to live that one down. <laughs> For a little while, I'll just take my lickens while I, while the licking is good. Um, no, he, uh, right, right. So you've got Walker Percy obviously is the person who essentially found this book. It was, yeah. br- it was brought to him by John Kennedy Toole's mother um, after he uh, had killed himself. But like a decade later, like it was a while, like she was shopping well, I think, around yeah, she for was a while. Try- she was yeah. trying to get it, she was trying to get it published for a while. Um, but also he, Ignatius J. Riley is a moviegoer, right? Mm-hmm. Like part of his identity is tied to this daily trip to the cinema. Even though he seems to hate everything he sees. Yeah, and and he is uh, a real disaster for everyone around him in the movie theater. And he... Uh, similar to his life. Yeah, stands in moral judgment of everybody. Do, have you ever known uh, a... Uh, An Ignatius? Ignatius. I would probably have cut them out of my life because he drives me crazy. That's yeah. the reason I didn't like this book. Because I think this book, before we get into that, what is this book about? 
Uh, it's about a guy that essentially functions as a uh, hurricane, destroying sort yeah. of everybody who who is within his path um, because of his belief in his intellectual and moral superiority to them, but in a, in a, in a really, in a comical way. Right. The book is a comedy in a way that we have not really read funny books before. Yeah, it's on the just podcast. a straight up comedy. It's a satire of, uh, the pretentious academic sort of in, in a lot of ways, uh, a satire of, of what masculinity has become sure. in, in the 21st century. Um, Even but, though it was written like the late 60s. Yeah, yeah, but it's it's. I, I mean, those those problems always existed, but it's predictive of this person who um, believes in his his moral superiority as kind of a slob, but but sees that as like a positive somehow. Well, I think yeah, because the the title Confederacy of Dunces comes from the there's like the epigraph at the beginning, and it's talking about how like you know you know a real genius is around when all the dunces you know rebel against him or whatever. Uh -huh. You asked if I knew it, Ignatius, and I would say no. If I have, I would cut them out because this type of personality drives me bananas. Yeah. Because he's so self-destructive and so oblivious and just so annoying that I I found a lot of the book funny, and I found passages funny, and I found like situations funny, and I found characters funny. But overall, I didn't enjoy it because I was so tired of him because I know that this type of person exists. Like, I don't know if you, I think maybe, I don't know if it was new then or just new to me because I was watching Seinfeld, but like, I remember when I was watching Seinfeld a year ago or whatever, someone said the most, it might, there's also a chance you said this to me on this very podcast, uh, that the most believable, believable character on that show is Kramer because Kramer's actually exist. No one else is real, but like Ignatius is kind of a Kramer, but Kramer has like a personality and a charm, but like the whirlwind or what I think you call it a hurricane drives me bananas yeah um the uh i'm gonna use this guy's real name he's a real he's a real person uh I'm do, gonna, I, do i bleep it out i don't know i will we'll make a call afterwards his name like sort of is an interesting name though so uh his name's i know him and Kristen knows him just do from about her name no you don't have to okay <laughs> just just from working retail in our hometown. Okay. So he's a guy that would come into the various stores that we worked at. Everything that he did, no matter what, mm -hmm. every time there was a problem. Sure. No no matter what. And I know this from, uh, you know, I would go to ShopRite and somehow I would be behind him online. And I would be behind him online for 20 minutes because mm -hmm, he mm -hmm. he because he brought in coupons and the coupons were not the right coupons, but he would right. argue or he didn't understand and he needed people to explain things to him. And he would often have his kids with him or his uh, wife or something. You could predict it every single time, sure. no matter what. There yeah. was a massive problem with every single thing that he did. And. I've had this conversation a bunch of times, but I'm just like, how does this guy live? How does he live his life having these conflicts? Daily. It must, multiple, it, multiple it must be multiple day. times an hour. Yeah. Because I've never been around him. I've been around him probably a hundred times in my life. Is he like older? He, yeah, he's probably uh, not that much older. He's probably like 60, okay. 60. So he might be in his seventies now. I have no idea how he functions the same way that like, I have no idea how Ignatius functions, but the reason 
is that Ignatius functions because he believes that everyone else is wrong. Mm-hmm. And he, he he finds himself in these conflicts to be like the righteous person moving right. through the day with a bunch of people. I mean, it's that cliche where it's like if you run into one asshole, you ran into an asshole. If you if you do nothing all day but run into assholes, you're the, then asshole. Maybe you're the asshole. Right. Right. And and like, yeah, that's sort of what Ignatius is um there's also something incredibly sad about ignatius sure and, and like sympathetic in a, in a certain way because i think this book is ultimately kind of about what happens when you give too much leeway to people possibly yeah, yeah. because everyone in his life is kind of overly accommodating in ways and one of the things i did find funny was that at the end when you know people show up like when when levy shows up to their house and he's just like, oh, my God, her, his mom is terrible to him. And it's just like, well, you don't know the history of like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, him yeah, being yeah. terrible to her or whatever. Uh-huh. Like the situational, yeah. oh, I, I feel bad for this guy. Mm-hmm. It's like, no, but you didn't see like him yelling at her and barking at her and like ruining her life and whatever. Um, but everybody is just so accommodating to him for no reason other than like if you it's easier to placate him. Yeah. Even though in the long run, it's probably not. But like in the short term, it's just like fine let's just get this guy out of my hair in in this exact moment and that's exactly how some people live their entire lives like Mm -hmm. that like i'm going to be annoying until they let me do what i want to do yeah and i don't know like i don't think his consciousness works. like he's not trying to be annoying because he believes that he's being completely morally righteous and that everyone actually is in league against him and that he actually does have good ideas right and it's like interesting because he's like a lot of things that are contradictory like obviously he is like homophobic in a very in a very specific yep. way like he refers to uh gay people as like degenerates and and all sorts of stuff like that but at the same time he's also like well it's also absurd that they don't have equal rights you know right so he's a complex like he's a very strange complex character and i think what works what i think that this book does better than the first two books in this series in terms of what we're doing a series season whatever in terms of what we're doing here is i think it's more of a new orleans more of a louisiana story than the other two were why why do you think that i think because i think it's a blend of people in a way like it felt and maybe just because the point of view being sort of scattered and Mm -hmm. like us seeing the world through five or six or seven different semi-main characters. But I feel like the moviegoer, what felt like Southern, but didn't necessarily feel specifically, like it was the anti-New Orleans novel, like we talked about in that episode. And then we talked about in All the King's Men, how it just felt like Southern politics, but not necessarily, maybe just because of lack of knowledge on our parts, Louisiana, right? But this is just like, it's the coalescence, like the the types of different people, like whether they're, gay people or, uh, you know, whatever kind of like people that he runs into that you largely only find in a city. And then I think it's also specifically New Orleans where it's sort of a little bit more flamboyant, a little bit more Mardi Gras, a little bit more whatever. Right. I think, I think that it plays specifically into the idea that we already had of what New Orleans was. Yeah. And that, that makes, that makes sense. Um, New Orleans almost seems fake to me. Like it seems like a city that's made of characters well, it's, it's, rather it's than it's like the other it's like the second Las Vegas. It's like the most Las yeah, Vegas that's not Las Vegas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it has like Las Vegas is is uh inorganically built. Um it's its culture is built specifically sure. around like 
degeneracy like created by the mob prostitution mm-hmm. is legal new orleans is like a, a homegrown culture right yeah. it's like that that place like grew up out of uh generations of uh various cultures coming into contact with one another what i think is cool about like my favorite part stylistically about the book is the way that the dialogue is written like it would be spoken yeah it's all it's very dialectal and i think it's very interesting i don't know that i agree that they were saying that like New Orleans accents, like a New Jersey accent. Yeah, I don't uh, Hoboken specifically, yeah. right? Um, I is that real? Don't know. Uh, I w- like certainly the stereotype of a New Orleans accent doesn't sound anything no. like any Hoboken accent that I've ever heard. Um, I mean, I'm relatively familiar with the Hoboken accent. Uh, I don't, but th- I also don't know anything about accents. So like. You know, sometimes I'll hear an accent in the movie and I'll think that sounds fake. And then it'll be like that person's actually from there, from that place. Yeah. And I'll be like, all right. Um, but I think like, the way it's written, like the way that I was reading it aloud in my head, because I read this, I didn't do an audiobook. It sounded. Yeah. If that's the right verb, like the South. Sure. And I think that if we were trying to write the way that like. Tony Soprano spoke or something like yeah. a North Jersey. Mm hmm hardened lifelong jersey guy it would not look or sound like this i agree and i also like want to compliment um the author in a sense because it's really hard to pull off writing in dialect without everything looking really fucking stupid and without just being like this is such a broad stereotype right of of what this is and there is a broad story we let, let, all right let's talk about jones uh now because we were talking about this on the way to and from lunch dinner or whatever we just ate yeah so i um uh i was in a very content condensed time period reading this book i read this book in two days and i didn't finish it by the time i was supposed to come here and so i uh like rolled the kindle book over into an audio book and listened to it on the drive uh which is something that i was dreading because you end up with uh, like a a white narrator doing this character jones um which has like i want to say a very like minstrelly black accent Mm -hmm. like he's doing a very like broad stereotype of a working class underclass black character who is being written in a dialectal way that like might be drawn from experience. I don't know. Maybe like John Kennedy tool, like uh, is like out there in the streets doing the work recording. But like when you have like a, a white voice after doing it, it's just right. like, fuck, this is like, this is bad. This is offensive. Yeah. Um, cause it's, cause it essentially sounds like the, like Amos and Andy, right. Where you, where you get like a white dude doing. I was thinking about that when I, when I listened to all the Kings men and Michael Emerson reading and just like, not that he was doing like, voices but he was saying the n-word a lot because that, that word's in that book a lot and i was like oh i guess like there's a certain like it's kind of a job i mean he's an actor but like you, yeah, you, yeah. you take a job or whatever and like it's it's not reflective of you but it's also like you're kind of doing a thing and like it's a weird thing like do you do you not do that minstrelly voice because, i don't like, i don't know i mean because, like it feels like you're 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 somehow editing the text in exactly a way. yeah 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 and it's not like you doing it makes you seem racist but it's also like to someone who's not thinking about it be like what's this guy doing yeah yeah for sure you could you could like excerpt it and and then like yeah i it, it just sounds it sounds bad and also it sounds bad because it's like you know that's that's a voice that we associate with old-timey racism yeah. we, we just do mm-hmm. um i i i don't think that it's the voice act like i don't i'm not saying like no 
anything bad about that voice actor, but I'm saying listening to it, it was like a strange experience. Cause like that, the, like a lot of the, the roots of that, I mean, I'm not, I'm not like a, you know, a, a blackface scholar or anything like that, but like the, you know, I, I know there were like lots of radio shows back then sure. that like did a lot of those sorts of stereotypes that, that involved white people doing exactly those kinds of voices. So it was really like, you know, strange. And then I'm thinking like, is there any real difference between doing that voice and writing that voice? And I'm, I'm also not sure if there's any difference there. And again, I'm not saying that anybody, I'm not saying he doesn't have the right to write the right, dialect right, right, like right, that, right. but it's just like, it's an interesting question to look at and think like, this is something that you would better get right or else you're in, in like a weird amount of trouble. Yeah. And apparently this was like, people responded well to this because after Walker Percy sort of begrudgingly read it and then loved it and championed it, yeah. it became a cult classic and a mainstream success after, mm -hmm. and it also won the Pulitzer. So it's two yeah. books in a row that won the Pulitzer. So like, this is something, it's now considered a canonical work of modern literature of the Southern U.S. So like, this is a thing that people know about, that they love, that they respect for yeah. maybe for lack of a better word, but it's not like, people are not, I'm sure some people are put off by all of it, but it seems like societally, they're like, this is good and this should be read and this should be appreciated. Yeah, well, well also here's one reason why it works with, with Jones as a character. Um, Arguably, Jones is the smartest character in the book. Well, he's also he's facing the societal thing pressures that like Ignatius thinks he's facing, right? Yeah, yeah, right. And Ignatius is is like <laughs> Ignatius has a real uh, like interesting opinion about class, which is that like to try to move up to the middle class to follow the American dream of like upward mobility is somehow selling out and and like, mm -hmm. and entering into a rat race that you're inevitably is inevitably going to like you know, make you miserable. Buying into a corrupt system only makes it more corrupt, which is like all interesting, but it also like that comes from the position of someone who is like notably middle class, has not had to work, is like living off of his mother's uh, money while like working on academic stuff. Like the traditional like arc of someone who um, is overly educated and, and, and unemployable. Yeah. And just annoying. Yeah, and well, most of those people are, I mean, myself, yeah. myself included, in some ways. Like, I think what's interesting about that whole like moving up to the middle class is selling out. It's like I think it's something that it reminded me of, like people who kind of like gatekeep fandom to their own, like their favorite bands, uh -huh. and like I think there's a lot of fans for different. I can't think of specific examples that like begrudge their band's success because like they are no longer like indie and cool, and now they like they quote unquote sold out. It's like, but don't you want them to be successful? Like it's this whole like. You're you're saying that it, you're values. saying Ignatius is gatekeeping the black experience in America. I wasn't, but now I, am. I mean that that makes kind of that kind of makes like a weird amount of sense. Um, cause because he does like, he does it with the workers too, right? He's trying to lead them on a yeah. on a march for fairer uh, wages, but also he doesn't actually want to see them necessarily succeed. Because like I wouldn't say it's like his story, but like the um the the beginning of Jones's story is that like if I'm just a black man around New Orleans who doesn't have a job I'm gonna get arrested for whatever yeah I need to get a job because then I can prove that like I'm an upstanding member of society so he takes his job and he gets like way underpaid at. yeah when he gets he and he's immediately exploited because yep. that's the way that Meanwhile, the, the most desperate people are the people who are most easily exploitable we see Ignatius get hired and struggle and be actively disagreeable at multiple jobs and lose all of those jobs. And he's still able to just like and the entire time Jones in the same thing, just sweeping up come or whatever, like in the, in the whorehouse, just like just disgusting, whatever. And Ignatius is just like, 
I can't possibly sell hot. Who wants to buy hot dogs? Is he like eating hot dogs or whatever? Yeah, he's just like, eating hot dogs all day and getting paid. It's the entitlement. It's the privilege, which again, I get that it's a satire and it's funny, but it's also frustrating to read because he sucks <laughs> by design. And I'm not saying that's a yeah. shortcoming of the writing, but it's, just, it's not enjoyable to me. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I think it's funny. Yeah. I do. I didn't take a lot of notes on this. I do think there's something about the very, can we talk about the very end or do you want to talk about that? I mean, we can go no, back, go ahead. but so Myrna, Myrna. Wait, hold on. Before we go, do you want one of these polio string cheese? No, that, that have been in your pocket for hours? <laughs> that, were, that were heated by my, by my body. No. So it's kind of like a little like warm, soft cheese. No, I'm good. You're sure? I'm sure I would enjoy it. I also would feel weird about having leg cheese. And consuming my body. Heat. Yeah, keep it. Eat it. So Myrna is this woman who lives in New York who, like, I guess Ignatius used to date, right? Like, they used to go out? Yeah, well, I don't know. Um, it's it's like— Or they were friends or something and yeah, she moved we, away. we can talk about Ignatius's sexuality, too. That That's another thing that's we'll eat up. Like the cheese. Like this body-warm cheese. So— she moves away to New York and he's like writing these antagonistic letters to her throughout. And it feels like there's no real reason why they were ever friends. Cause like they both disrespect one another and whatever. And then with like four pages left, she shows up and whisks him away. And I wrote down, it's like Deus ex Mirna. Like she just saves him. God from the Mirna. And you know, <laughs> it should be Mirna ex machina. <laughs> yeah. But like, it doesn't look as good, but Oh, this cheese is so disgusting feeling. <laughs> is it's it just sweaty? like, is it like, sweaty? Yeah, like the texture of it is so gross. Gross. Um, <laughs> but I think what's what's interesting about this is that this all three, and I wonder if this is gonna be true of the other seasons we do like this, but it's like only in leaving do they ever get insight. Not that Ignatius really gets insight, but in the moviegoer, um, he leaves to yeah. go to Chicago. He's just like, Oh yeah, like I'm I'm out or whatever. And then we talked about it in All the King's Men. The only one who really kind of survives is the one who gets out. Yeah. And so here, again, it's just like he never wanted to leave. He never felt like he could leave or should leave or would ever want to leave. And then he does. You're just like, well, it's a new start for me now. Yeah, it's interesting because you think about it like um, to to really love a place, maybe you need distance from mm-hmm. it. Um, you have to be able to to leave it and look back on it and then and and then you can assess it. Um, but usually when you're when you're in the midst of it, it's very difficult to leave and you think harshly of it. I mean, that's like a recurring stereotype about New Yorkers, right? Is that they hate New York and they would never live anywhere else. Right. Um, so I'm wondering, yeah, that'll be interesting when we, when we get to the New York uh, module. But yeah, that's it's it's something I think you've already hit upon one of the main insights of, of regional literature is that like the important thing is leaving. Yeah. Like I think, and I don't remember if we talked about this in the intro to this or whatever, but like I moved to Texas for two years and I was like, oh, I want to, I want to live something where there's somewhere where there's like more exciting things, there's more culture and whatever. And I'm like, oh wait, no, I want to be like where like the people that I know are. And like, I'd rather, and again, it was a distance that sort of reminded me like, oh no, things are, things can be good or bad no matter where you go. Yeah. It's all about your, what you bring to it. Kind I mean, of, right? I moved to Los Angeles for, for a little over two years and I was miserable for almost the entire time that I was there. Yeah. But now you're back and still kind of miserable. No, probably more miserable. Like I would, I would say I would count right now um, this specific week as like the worst time of my life. So this is the office space thing. I don't know. There's the where, where Peter goes to the psychiatrist. He uh-huh. goes, every day is the worst day of my life. He goes, yeah. well, what about today, Peter? Is today the worst day of your life? He goes, you know, I guess it is. He goes, whoa, that's heavy. So sorry about that. That's all right. I just, you know, I'm having a rough patch. Well, Jesus isn't helping. No. I'm glad 
the one thing I'm glad about your rough patch is that we timed it so that we can end our Hooters quest. I'm sure you're probably your overall mental state finally helped cave to the fact that this Hooters in particular is sad and no good. We're never going to go back. No. It's a bad sandwich I had today. Megan Boyle, if you're listening, I know that she was kind of a champion of this. Um, I'm sorry to you. I'm sorry to Blake. Yeah, I'm sorry to the Atlanta out. Hawks. Didn't work out. What else do you want to talk about with uh, Confederacy? Of well, Dances? so Myrna is is like a um, a satire slash stereotype of a specific kind of um, college aged feminist from from what the sixties, I guess. Sure. And I mean, and and this person still exists too. Where it's like when you when you read their intellectual manifestos, um, they take things that are reasonable and then make them unreasonable. Sure. Which makes you hate them. Yeah. That makes it sound like I'm a men's rights activist guy. Well, you are, but that, that's not why. <laughs> and you'd be accurate. <laughs> Moving on. No, but I think well, like, what's interesting about the Mernica is she's, she's like a central character, even though she doesn't show up till the very, very, very end. Yeah. And like the whole time, his mom is just like, why are you writing to her? Like, she just drives you crazy. And again, it's another thing of like, he doesn't really know why he doesn't have a reason for why he's doing the thing he's doing. It's just that like, she's there and he writes to her and whatever. Right. But I I appreciated how she was a character throughout, even though we never really hear her other than from letters that like maybe a couple letters that he gets from her throughout Mm -hmm. the text. I thought that was an an interesting way that when she shows up, it's not surprising because it feels in a certain sense inevitable that she would show up. And it makes sense. I mean, I don't like that she just like whisks him away, but yeah, I like you know, it. I, I like, like it. I like it. And we talked about this a little bit because it feels to me like it's setting up a sequel, right? Like it feels like the next book is is Ignatius in New York, right? Where he would probably flounder even worse than he would in New Orleans, because yeah, because um, New Orleans, at least as we've been told, as people outside of New Orleans, is. Incredibly sympathetic to the eccentric. Yeah. And I also think that Myrna, I think in the letters to and from her, seems like they have a contentious relationship. And then she shows up and she's kind of basically his mom. Like she just kind of placates him as well. And it's just Mm -hmm. like, oh, like I I misread this relationship. So like part of me would say when if if he spends time with her in New York, she would be harsher on him, like get a job, get a job. But I don't think in the very brief interaction they have in person, I don't think that we would get that. I think that she would bend over and do exactly what, like whatever he placates him placates. I said that already twice. I don't want to use the same word again, but like would do whatever he asks of her Yeah, and would not make him get a job, would not make him do anything to right. actually allows him to ride in the backseat of the car to. Yeah. Can I ask you, um, what is the valve? I had to look this up. Like, what is that? I was like, I was like, this sounds like a completely made up medical condition that I don't understand at all. So I think he's literally saying a valve between like his intestine and his stomach or something. But I think it's just like a, like a pressure release of like his life when like when the valve closes, like he gets stressed and gets tightened up. Mm-hmm. And I think that's part of why he maybe gains weight, even though the real reason he gains weight because he eats like 40 yeah, hot dogs, 40 hot dogs a day. Um, we've all been there. We've done it. Yeah. Have you ever gone to a, a ballpark for like dollar hot dog night? No. I had like eight at a Brewers game and I was like, cause they're so cheap and like, they weren't like, they weren't satisfying me cause there's like, there's no nutrients in them. And then, and then all of a sudden just like, Oh, that was a bad idea. Like it was just like not doing anything for me, not doing anything, not, not doing, not doing, not doing. Oh no. I was at a Phillies game 
Um, and I bit into a hot dog oh, and it wanna... sent a streaming arc of juice over the shoulder of the person that was in front of me. I think I've heard this story. It was really, really f- like, and I, I just like put the hot dog down and looked away, pretended like I had nothing to do with that stream of juice that shot over her shoulder. Did she turn around? No, she didn't, which is also really weird. Maybe, maybe she's used to it. Yeah. Or maybe she just pretended like she didn't notice because it didn't hit her and it would be awkward. But I think the valve is like, I mean, it's a metaphor for just like stress in his life or whatever. But I think, I think, I don't think there's an actual, like, I don't think that your stomach can close yeah, off and right, like right, keep right. you from yeah. digesting food. But mm-hmm. I think that's like how he's describing it. And I think it's also. Because like throughout the text, a lot of people are like, what are you talking about? What right. is this valve? Yeah. But I think it's like metaphorically just like when the valve is open, his life is easy. When the valve is closed, things are bad. And I think yeah. the valve is mostly closed for him. Yeah. I did look up. What did I look up? I have, is this something I wanted to, cause I was looking at the accent. I'm like, is the new Orleans accent like the New Jersey accent? Okay. And I found some website called Schmoop, which I guess is kind of like a yeah, it's like cliff notes yeah, sort yeah. of thing. Spark notes. They were saying that Confederacy of Dunces is often cited as one of the quintessential novels of new Orleans. It's a culturally unique city with a strong French influence. Mixture of French speakers and Southern English has result, resulted in a distinctive dialect known as Yat, Y-A-T, among some of the city's residents. It's sort of a vicious New Jersey accent, a nasal intonation that can slice through paint and leave strong philologists, I guess, language, oh, yeah, sure. weeping in their chalk. Irene Riley's accent is often cited as a particularly ac- accurate rendition of Yat. Interesting. And then they also talked about Dorian Green. His party and his friends are part of a long tradition of homosexual culture in the French Quarter. This is just about like the setting of New Orleans right. in general. Which is a plan Dorian Gray. New Orleans' tradition of Catholicism is referenced in numerous ways as well. And then there's this I thought was interesting. This is why I kept it open. So there's the D.H. Holmes department store, which was a real department store that was set in New Orleans, which is where the novel starts, where he like almost gets arrested by yeah. Van Cuso. Mm-hmm. Um, they actually made a statue of Ignatius. That that department store is no longer there. Oh, no kidding. But they made a statue of Ignatius. They put up out where that was. It can be found under the clock on the downriver side of the 800 block of Canal Street, the former side of the D.H. Holmes department store, now the Hyatt French Quarter Hotel. It mimics the opening scene. Ignatius waits for his mother under the clock, clutching a shopping bag, dressed in a hunting cap, flannel shirt, baggy pants, and scarf, quote, studying the crowd of people for signs of bad taste. It's based on New Orleans actor John Spud McConnell, who played Ignatius in a stage version. And they said that when Mardi Gras happens, they just move it out of the way because like there's too many people there. But like most of the year, you can go see a statue of Ignatius back where, you know. That's awesome. But the weird kind of thing is like, th- th- this is so weird, is that like in the beginning, in like the very first chapter, like one of the very first pages of the book is that he, quote, sees the sunset at the foot of Canal Street. And Shmoop is just like, this is an elaborate in-joke because it actually sets on the other side. Just like, who would know that? <laughs> well, if you're, if, you're in, if you're in New Orleans and you're a native, you'd know it. And it ends with rather a confederacy of dunces, twists and curves, somewhat like the Mississippi and like New Orleans itself. But yeah, just like it, it, using the knowledge of the city. So I feel like in that way, too, it's more New Orleans that like I think yeah. it specifically has to take place in this place. And you're gonna, you're, yeah, you're going to get more out of it if you if you're familiar right. with the area, if you know it. Well, I think it's the kind of thing where, like, you watch a movie and you're like, even, like, I don't have, like, a great geography of New York, but it's like, you can't go in the Holland Tunnel and be, like, you know, in Harlem in, like, four minutes. It's like, and, like, and you would see people driving, like, all of a sudden, like, there's somewhere just like, oh, that's not. Yeah, or uh, I remember, like, I watched an episode of that show, Miss Marvel, which is supposed to take place in Jersey City, 
And yet the streets are so wide. Yeah. And it's just like, that's not that. that right. It's very, very clearly not Jersey City. Yeah. Come so, on. Get it together. But other people are just like, oh, Jersey City looks so nice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Did you ever see those things on Instagram where it's like five places in New Jersey that seem unreal, but then like the actual videos of it are like, uh, you know, they're like glaciers and, and, and like mountains and the Himalayas and stuff like that. No. Okay. Well, it's just, it's just like the internet. Your, your Instagram internet algorithm line. is so different from mine. Yeah. Mostly basketball stuff though now. And stand-up comedy for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. Stand-up comedy. Other New Orleans things is the other thing I copied. Warline's Music Store, local cinemas like the Puritania are mm-hmm. real places. Cool. Dr. Nut is an actual local soft drink brand of the era. All right. And Paradise Hot Dogs are a satire of Lucky Dogs, which is like a hot dog chain See, we should have we should have made the trip to New Orleans. We still can. Yeah, I would I, have. I would, it would have to come at the end of this so that we could. Yeah, we'd, this, we'd this, have we'd have to do it by the end of March or whatever. Yeah, we got six weeks. The idea behind the scenes is that, and this is like a sort of a half joke. That we're like, actually, we could probably do it because there wouldn't. We might have even said it on the episode that we would go to the state where that we read about. Yeah, because I think it'd be cool. Even though I didn't like this book that much, I would like to have a picture taken in front of the Ignatius statue. Yeah, but the issue is that if it's if it's gone during Mardi Gras, like we're entering Mardi Gras season now, are we? Well, it's the six weeks leading up to Easter. I didn't know that. Yeah, like I think it kicks off on. When is Easter? April? No, it's like the Sunday that has to do with like it's sometimes in March, right? Yeah. I don't know the answer to any of this. Easter twenty twenty three is April 9th. So someone's breaking the googling rule, but okay. Um, so Ignatius has Ignatius is what's Ignatius's relationship to sex. Is he a virgin? Uh, I'm not sure, but he definitely like comes in the beginning when he's like thinking about his dog. I forgot about that. That's yeah. a really weird thing. Yeah. I, like that's like very, like, uh, not only like bizarre, but character defining at that point to where you're like, this is going to be a thing in the book that he has this like weird sexuality and then a couple times uh, like he gets a boner when he's being lifted on onto the table mm-hmm. and he has a boner in the hospital he wakes up with a boner in the hospital and he has to take care of it he sends his mom out of the room yeah um and and myrna is of course thinks that his disgust with lack of interest in sex is sort of the the psychoanalytical reason behind all of his neuroses i mean that's freudian right like that's and he li- and he lives with his mom his primary relationship is with his mother as his caretaker um so yeah all of that stuff is tied together yeah i don't know enough about psychoanalysis or anything remotely like that where i'm like i don't know if this is going far enough if it's adding extraneous detail in a way like it seems like he's what john kennedy tool is making a comment on something, but it might just be mm. like man child in general, kind of. Yeah. Well, that's, I mean, also, yeah. Think about like, it's interesting to think of this book as a progenitor of like every single comedy from the two thousands. Yeah. Like your entire, uh, Judd Apatow, Will Ferrell, John C. Riley school of, of, uh, man-child comedy, right? People, guys who just refuse to grow up. Mm-hmm. I mean, going, and we, we can go through, like I copied it, like this this book has been tried to adapt, be a, become adapted or get adapted into a movie a bunch of different times. 
and there's a bunch of different things. And I feel like it's easy to cast the lead role because I feel like so many movies we've seen are centered around characters like this. Yeah. Uh, the only, the only uh, boundary is that is the, the physique yeah. of the character. So people who famously have, have were going to play this character include John Belushi, Chris Farley, uh, John Candy. So in 82, Harold Ramis was going to write and direct it, starring Belushi as Ignatius and Richard Pryor as Jones, but Belushi died. Then John Candy and Chris Farley were both tatted for the lead, but both of them, like Belushi, also died. So the people were like, oh, this might be cursed. Um, John Waters was going to adapt it to having starred in Divine, but Divine also died. That's, that, that, John, that, that sounds like the best version of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, because divine and and divine would be um, not in drag, presumably, probably. So, so like it would be interesting, but John Waters like really has the spirit of this book. I think I was thinking, and I think I only thought about. I didn't think about this till the very end of like in terms of a direct like this director, but there's a chapter toward the end. So like, oh, as a sidestep for a second, throughout the entire book, Ignatius talks about how he loves this like thousands of year old the constellation of philosophy of I. Boethius. Boethius. Yeah. And even though like everything that book preaches, he does the opposite of, he's just like, this is the best book. Start read, read this, whatever. But supposedly have you, re- have you read that or no? no, the four, like the literal structure of format of this book follows that where it's chapters divided into sub chapters. And there's like sort of epistolary stuff in between or whatever. So like John Kennedy tool is like, there's, there's more to it. So I'm sure uh, like the same thing I'm guessing with like the Ella Fachiman things where it's like, if you had read what she yeah, is, yeah, yeah. there's more to it. So whatever. he's like, like with that with the New Orleans in jokes, this is like circles within circles, yes. which is also part of the book that the world is made up of circles within circles. For within sure. Circles. So I didn't think about this director until toward the end. There was one chapter that had like 15 or 20 sub chapters and it felt very like boogie nightsy. And I feel like Paul Thomas Anderson, not that he would, but I think having adapted inherent vice feels like he could kind of do this. Yeah. But I think, yeah, I think he's a guy that can do anything. Right. Um, I was thinking that it would be interesting as a uh, Ralph Bakshi. I'm going to Google him because you were saying him before. Yeah. um, You definitely are familiar. Like Ralph Bakshi is sort of a uh, titan of adult animation, right? He made Fritz the Cat. He made a movie called Coonskin. He did... Um, I think the original version of Lord of the Rings. In 78, yeah. Fire, um, Ice, Wizards, Fritz the Cat. Yeah, okay. Yeah, he's he's great. I mean, he's um, he's fantastic. And also animation, like, allows you to indulge in some of the caricature stuff that you can't do quite so well. Do you think – oh, he also did Cool World. Do you think – Cool World, yeah, that's a big – yeah. Do you think you were influenced by that because of the cover of this being yeah, a very hyper-animated – Probably, yeah. That sort of style? yeah. And, okay. and also because I was thinking of uh, characters like I was thinking of uh, Paul F. Tompkins, specifically Big Chunk, the voice of Big Chunky Bubbles as as being like similar to Ignatius' yeah. voice. And and like I was thinking like, OK, so if you have voice actors, sure. you can like avoid a lot of the the more um, physical limitations yeah. or age limitations. Or yeah, whatever. yeah, yeah. And, and it allows you to indulge in the satire stuff of how people look. You can make them a lot more grotesque looking. Sure. You can make them a lot more. Someone I cast in All the King's Men, John Goodman, the longtime resident of New Orleans, was slated to play him, play him at one point. So he would have been great. So then here's the it seems like this is the closest it ever came. But in 2005, Steven Soderbergh and Scott Kramer were going to adapt it for a David Gordon Green film. Will Ferrell as Ignatius, Lily Tomlin as his mom. That's great. She's she's fantastic. They did a 
staged reading, like a table read. They have, I guess she wasn't available. They had Anne Mira Do Irene, Paul Rudd as Mancuso, talking about, you know, man children. Uh, Kristen Johnson as Lana Lee, most deaf as Jones, Rosie Perez as Darlene, the owner of the club, Olympia Dukakis as both Santa and Miss Trixie. Hot in the news right now because of Poker Face, Natasha Leone as Myrna. Yeah, all right. That's a good impression of her, too. Yeah, all right. <laughs> okay. Alan Cumming as Dorian Green, John Shea as Gonzalez, Jesse Eisenberg as George, who's the teen, the, the gay teen, right? Um, John Conlon as Robichaux, Jace Alexander as Bartender Ben, Celia Watson, and Dan Hedaya as Mr. Levy. Dan Hedaya. That's so good. And so people were like, well, why didn't this, like, you seem so close. And apparently Paramount, shout out P+, uh, basically like, as a company, was just like, we don't really want to make this. Yeah. Like, they just seemed like there was not a person, internal champion. Uh, the head of the Louisiana State Film Commission, Helen Hill, was murdered at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, and Katrina, you know, changed the city. All these things happening at the same time. And... Will Farrell's like, I don't know, it's a mystery. And Soderbergh said a quote, I think it's cursed. I'm not prone to superstition, but that project has got bad mojo on it. And then after that in 2012, there's a version with uh Zach Galifianakis. And then they did one, they put one on it in Boston, shout out to Egg, um, in November 2015, where Nick Offerman played it on the stage. I could see that, yeah. And that became the highest grossing production in that theater troops history. Yeah, Nick Offerman is also like a classic literature guy. Like he does all the audiobooks for Mark Twain stuff, and and this feels like it's right up his alley. Also, the star of Gay Up, which is not a timely reference as this comes out. But I could, yeah, I could see him. I could, I could see him doing it. Um, yeah. Uh, what what else? Is there anything else in here that you want to go into? I mean, there's a lot of like obviously like there's a lot of Marxist themes. Marxism, communist, and everything, right? And, yeah, and, and and a lot of Freudian themes. I mean, I would say that the Marxist stuff comes specifically from his. Being a, a uh, you know, a member of the the uh, lumpen proletariat, being the group of people that are will never achieve class consciousness, the proletariat that will never achieve class consciousness. But his is more like a a willingness to engage in in self deception for means of his own like high intellectual ideas, whereas uh, Jones is like very specifically conscious of class dynamics sure. and, and is, is, uh, actually more intelligent. Yeah. And is, and is like, you know, knows how the world works, knows the ways in which he's going to get screwed and knows what he has to do to not get screwed. Um, some of the best, some of the best parts of the book for me are, um, him and the owner of the night of joy, like going back and forth, him saying like, I'm just gathering evidence and her saying her and her threatening to fire him. Like in both of their like relationships with the police and how he like has to work in this place that is underpaying him so that he doesn't get arrested. Um, so I think there's like an undercurrent in this book of like actually serious social commentary uh, that is, you know, Trojan horsed in by a bunch of like unbelievably cartoonish. Uh, things, which is some sometimes the best way to to move towards that sort of thing, and and you have you have also like he's he is representative of Jones. No, no, no. Uh, sorry, Ignatius okay. is representative of like the white academic revolutionary who is like encouraging people to put everything on the line, and then like once his bean plants get smashed, he's like, these people are savages. Right. Like we can't try. Like he's, he's, you know, the, the, the kind of guy that like on Twitter 
is like, what did like Reza Aslan say when, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died? He was like, if they even try, if they even try to replace her, that's it. We're going to burn it all down. And then it's like, you talk a big game, buddy. But yeah, <laughs> but like what, right. what happened? Because that he's got nothing like he actually does have things to lose and he's not going to put anything on the line, but he's encouraging other people to put things on the line right. uh, because like he wants revolutionary politics, but he wants revolutionary politics at the expense of only the the vulnerable people who enact them and not him who's looking down at it and cheering them on. It's like, well, my I have the platform. I'm I'm encouraging it. Like, yeah, that's, I'm doing yeah exactly. Like, oh, man. Yeah. Money where your mouth is. I will say, I, I meant to mention this earlier. You talked about your favorite parts between like Jones and the owner. I think my favorite, I think when it first clicked, like the type of humor clicked for me is when Ignatius shows up to Levy Pants. And it felt kind of like Joe versus the volcano, like that kind of office. Like uh-huh. Also with Dan Hedaya, which is like, I don't understand. How is this place still functioning? Yeah. And like, it just, it was very funny and like, not severancey, but like still like a, like the workplace yeah. anti-comedy kind of, where just like, I don't understand how any of you are still doing anything. And I felt like that specific, him walking into a preformed situation mm-hmm. that we were not privy to before, like you know, we start the book and him and his family or whatever, like that's all stuff that's new to us. But I feel like him experiencing this new weirdness at the same time that we are, that was the first time where I'm just like, this is really, really funny to me. Like describing Miss Trixie and describing, you know, yeah. the the office manager and describing Mr. Levy and everything. It's just like, this seems insane. And and also all the stuff with Gus and all the stuff with the the like foreman of the factory who's drunk all the time um, is, is like sort of uh, – Nodding to this idea that for – especially for things like legacy corporations, it's like the people who are in charge and who are profiting off this are really not doing anything at all. Yeah. They, they, they just sit back and collect money while people sweat on machines, you know? Like that's I, – I think that there's a lot going on in this book that is, again, uh, it's got like kind of pancake makeup over it to, to yeah. uh, make it funny. I think – I will say that I did not really like this book, but I liked it more as it went on and I think that it ended – I liked where it ended better than I was enjoying it through much of it. Yeah. Um, and I think that like what we were saying, I think it, 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 it almost surprisingly encourages deeper readings given that at face value, it's kind of just, it's not like a book of fart jokes kind of, you know what I mean? It feels like it's very slapsticky, but like there's more going on here, which I appreciate. Again, it's not something that I enjoyed reading, Yeah. but I appreciate that there is, depth here if that's something you want to pursue but like the like the first scene in this book is hilarious where they where, where like uh ignatius is is there and the cops come and start hassling him because he's like an eccentric on the sidewalk and then the old man comes to defend him and the old man is like police or communist and ignatius just like bolts and lets lets mr robichaud like take the entire brunt of the yeah. of the police and 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 the crowd uh who are now against him for accusing the police of being communist, even though like he was doing so to, to like stand up for Ignatius. Like it's that it, it, it's a good introduction to the character of Ignatius who like only sees himself as someone who's beset upon by society. He doesn't see the damage that he's doing to the people around him, even the people who are really trying to help him. Yeah. Very well said. Yeah. Anything else you want to talk about? You want to read X email? Uh, go ahead. Read, read the email. We have a lot of, we, we have a lottery. Yeah. All right, from the top, start over. <laughs> we have an email address, lottery at cageclub.me. Was going to make a joke about the email that I got to the Elvis podcast. I don't even want to go into that. That whole idea exhausts me. Go listen to Viva Pod Vegas. The episode's probably out by now. I don't even know if we're going to talk about it on there because it's, it's so exhausting. It's very funny. I know you appreciate it. it, it it's wild. Anyway, 
emailing whatever. Yeah. Except for what this woman did. <laughs> Lottery at cageclub.me. We'll read about, you know, any of the books. I will say in two weeks, our new season starts. Next week in our off week, we will be announcing the theme for season five. So come back for that. But whether you want to read any of those books or any book that we've already done or just literally any book, Bob is probably, I mean, Tulsa has probably read it. Lottery at cageclub.me. Meg's reaction to Confederacy of Dunces. And this devastating. I'm assuming it's going to be one of my shorter emails. Long story short, I lost all my notes that I made in this book directly <laughs> after finishing it, so I have nothing to refer well, she, back yeah, to. She was like walking down the street with a notepad and like a strong wind kicked up. And her notes just like went scattering down and she had to like chase them. And then they, they all end up in the Charles and she's like hanging over the edge, reaching into the water while a duck came and ate her notes. Yeah. All right. That's the next paragraph. I'm going to skip that one. <laughs> This was another book. Oh, I didn't say the thing. I was saying before that I had this thought while reading that she wrote in her email. I'm like, yes, I agree. And I want I want you to explain why. Like I have a, I have a vague understanding why, but we'll get to that when we get to it. This is another book where I probably wouldn't have finished it if it weren't for the podcast. I She calls it Lottery Pod. Thank you. I appreciate that. I found almost every character to be unlikable except for Irene and Jones. Irene? Irene seems terrible. Yeah. All right. Even then, Irene really annoyed me. Okay, so she qualifies it immediately. <laughs> Even then, Irene really annoyed me with Irene's all of her awful. hand. That's Ignatius's mom. All of her hand wringing about what to do with Ignatius. Mrs. Levy was my least favorite, though. Every time I had to read her dialogue, I got so angry. Yeah, she's awful. Yeah, I think the book like has a lot of targets, and and she's sort of like the the like, um, the well kept crusader, right? Yeah. Like she's she's you know. Standing in judgment of everyone else while she's not, you know, she's like got I, her little projects, but she's not actually doing anything. I would ask if this book is sexist, but no one comes off looking worse than Ignatius. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, it's almost anti-human in a yeah, way, yeah, which yeah, is like yeah. everybody's terrible, yeah. right? Yeah, there's no. The, yeah, but I do feel bad for Mister Levy, who's just like his wife, is just like you're not as good as your dad. You're not as good as your dad. You're not as good as your dad. Hey, your dad wouldn't have done this. Yeah, your dad would be doing better. Well, it's uh, yeah. There's we got uh, Freudian stuff there too. And then he's just like, all right, fuck it. We're doing shorts. And she's like, what? Yeah, that, that's a funny twist. That's they're, funny. they're a Bermuda shorts company now. For some reason, I was, this is, this is what I thought of too. For some reason, I was reminded of Guile's Goat Boy while reading this. Mm-hmm. It's hard to articulate why, but the essence of Guile's Goat Boy felt like it was in, it was there in the way that some of the characters are speaking. Ignatius felt kind of similar to George as a hero, quote unquote hero. She said, I had to look at my old email to remember what the main character's name was. I almost called him Guile's. Mrs. Levy's dialogue felt similar to the dialogue in it, too. And there was something about Myrna that kind of reminded me of Anastasia. I don't know. I don't have notes from either book at this point, so I guess I'll move on. But I saw this because I was saying to you that I was I just logged on to Goodreads and I saw that she had given us two stars. And I messaged her. I was like, I because I was struggling to get through this because I just wasn't enjoying it. So like I was delaying it because I didn't want to read it or whatever. And then when she sent in the email, I looked and I was like, I thought Guile's Goat Boy too. My best explanation, I want to see if there's if you think there's any parallel between the two. I think they're both kind of like humoring an absolutely loathsome protagonist, where it's just like everyone seems to think to one extent or another that this person is smart or this person is worth like bending over backwards to appease, and they're both just insufferable. I liked reading this. I would read this a hundred times before I read Giles Goat Boy. Maybe not. I would read, I would read this twenty times before I read Giles again. Um, but yeah, they're also they're also uh, 
satire the the like usefulness of academics and and the um like the hierarchy that academics create uh there's a character that we didn't talk about at all which is talc I don't even know if I remember. Do I remember Talc? Who's Ta- Talc? Talc is, it was Myrna and, and Ignatius's college professor. Oh, right. And uh, Ignatius. Who gets the of, note from Zorro? Is that that guy? Yeah, Zorro is Ignatius. Um, okay. Who's like teasing him. Uh, and he is someone who doesn't know his material, but he gets by on being like kind of charming with students. Mm-hmm. And it's this idea that like idiots rise to the top. Yes. Right. Idiots are, are like, if you can be confident and, and charming to a certain degree articulate you can you can get away with not knowing anything so i think that i think there's a degree of satire of of like what it means to be academic in in both of those books i but yeah i guess you're right they uh, george is loathsome um in a much more violent and and uh rapey way than ignatius is there was a, a thing i highlighted about rape that's a terrible thing to say but it was a it was a kind of a funny line um I'm not and now get, with the rape highlights, Joey Lewandowski. <laughs> the human desire for food and sex is relatively equal. If there are armed rapes, why should there not be armed hot dog thefts? I see nothing unusual in the matter. It's just like I don't even know where to begin to start. To well, no, I, mean, I, I think I think that's what sort of the book in a nutshell, which is that he's centering his own experience right. while dismissing yeah. all other experiences. Yes, I just thought it was a funny yeah. thing. Um, there was something else I wanted to say. Oh. I think one like Giles. I just hated more and more as it went on. Like this is like I I I hate every with every fiber of my being. I hate this experience. But this I liked, and I think that I would say from an objective, if I had to predict based on not liking this overall up to the point, I would think that I would dislike this. But I liked that sort of at the end, everyone kind of succeeds and things fall into place. Just that a happenstance. Mm-hmm. Like Mancuso being in like in a dumb costume because his boss makes him wear a dumb costume and like that's why, you know, he looks like an easy mark and gets propositioned or whatever or like the note taking talc down or like all these different things that like don't really matter but they all just kind of – they wind up in – or the book for instance um, or like the picture and whatever. Like all these things that like don't really seem to matter because it does not seem like a the narrative where plot matters and yet they all wind up exactly where they're supposed to be mm-hmm. and it's a very kind of satisfying conclusion. I think that's why like – for most of them, just like, I don't know what any of this means. I don't know why I'm supposed to care about any of this. Like, it all kind of pays off in, yeah, in the end. I think it's a well-structured book. Yeah. Last chance on any of this cheese. No, I'm good. I think it's a well-structured book that, like, is surprising that it's well-structured. Because mm-hmm. it seems messy. Yeah, it seems like a shaggy dog story. My last thoughts, Egg says, feel like they will flow better as bullets. Number one, even though it's just a bullet. Bullet. I thought it was nice that this novel tied back to notoriously white author Walker Percy <laughs> forward. I can't get, I can't get, yeah. Give me a break, guys. Were you guys aware that apparently the NOLA accent is similar to the New Jersey accent? No. Well covered. Well covered. I'm curious to hear what Bobby has to say about this book from a Marxist perspective, but I assume this already happened. Check. Uh, assumption correct. All in all, Egg says, okay book, but one I don't plan on reading again. Yeah, I don't uh, – I've read it twice. I think I'm good. I think one other thing that I was very frustrated by, and that's this has nothing to do with John Kennedy Tool or the text itself. This is a terrible Kindle book. Oh, yeah. The page numbers yeah. are screwy. It feels like – It claims that it's 244 pages, and then it, it's like – It's 400 pages, and it's, it's like a, the 220 or whatever. Yeah. And then what also really annoyed me, because like there would be like 
it felt like you were on like the last page of a chapter. Like I'd be like, oh, cause like, you know, if I'm falling, if I'm getting tired, I'm like, let me finish this chapter. I'm like, oh, it ends on 244 or whatever, or 144. And I'm on 144 for like three or four Kindle page clips. I'm like, how is this not the end of the chapter? It also sometimes didn't, um, wasn't consistent in, in like the like font size. The font size. That's the, that's the next yeah, thing. Yeah, that, that bothered me a lot. Where when he, when there's like epistolary, when he's writing notes or he's writing, you know, recountings of his work, which I'm like, I don't know why this is happening, then that pays off at the end too. Or he gets a letter from Myrna. It's a smaller font and then it'll like break to have his thoughts, but like the thoughts will be small too. And then it'll be like the next paragraph will be big, even though it's a writing thing. It's just like, no one proofed this. Yeah. Yeah. It's annoying. And so like, that was just a frustrating experience. And again, that has nothing to do with the actual book, but it's just like, if you're going to read this, I guess just read the book. Yeah. If you're going to read it, just read the book. Damn. Anyway, lottery at cageclub.me. We talked about all the castings. Is there anybody else that you thought about while reading this that you would cast? No, not not really. Um We're at Lottery Pod on Twitter. I tweet I don't know if you I don't you I think you know this, but I don't know if the listeners know this. Every time there's a book on this in The Simpsons, I, I tweet a screenshot of it. So if you want a history of every book that's in The Simpsons, it's at Lottery Pod on Twitter. Just keep reading. Uh yeah. Today's crime is wearing a military outfit to the mall and getting that military discount, baby, even if you're not part of the military. I feel like stealing valor has been a crime before, but I'm the I think go. about it all the time. I think about stealing valor all the time. The one you I hate don't. that one. Ah, <laughs> oh, God, you got to get better at things, man. I was born right here, November '43. Dad was a captain in the army, fighting the Germans in Sicily.